The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. Well, Donald Trump threatened to do it. It was sort of confusing why he was threatening to do it, but he did it. Donald Trump has vetoed the second coronavirus relief package that got through the House and Senate. And now there are immediately a number of important things here. And let me get to what for many people is the most pressing and important question. Does this mean that if you were expecting a six hundred dollar check, Uh, if you make up to seventy five thousand dollars a year that you will not be getting your six hundred dollars. And the answer is we can't say that yet, because this may be uh, the first time that during Donald Trump's presidency, the House and Senate are going to override Donald Trump's veto. Remember that uh, if a president vetoes a bill passed by the House and Senate, the House and Senate can override that with a two thirds vote in the House and a two thirds vote in the Senate. And that may well happen. Reports are that the House will vote on Monday. And if the House votes to override, the Senate will reconvene on Tuesday to vote as well. Now, the explanation for why Trump vetoed this bill is actually sort of incoherent. Donald Trump with his veto notice saying, quote, my administration has taken strong actions to help keep our nation safe and support our service members. I will not approve this bill which would put the interests of the Washington, D.C. establishment over those of the American people. Now, what Trump seems to be referring to here is what he mentioned on Tuesday in that very strange speech he gave where he listed countries and other environmental and and other causes that were receiving money, but they were actually receiving the money from the spending bill, not the covid bill, but they were passed together. Reminder of that from Donald Trump's Tuesday video. This bill contains eighty five point five million dollars for assistance to Cambodia, one hundred thirty four million dollars to Burma, one point three billion dollars for Egypt and the Egyptian military, which will go out and buy almost exclusively Russian military equipment, twenty five million dollars for democracy and gender programs in Pakistan. $505 million to Belize, Costa Rica, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua, and Panama. $40 million for the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., which is not even open for business. $1 billion for the Smithsonian and an additional $154 million for the National Gallery of Art. Likewise, these facilities are essentially not open. $7 million for reef fish management, $25 million to combat Asian carp, $2.5 million to count the number of amberjack fish in the Gulf of Mexico, a provision to promote the breeding of fish in federal hatcheries, $3 million in poultry production technology, $2 million to research the impact of down trees, $566 million for construction projects at the FBI. So there are about three to four ways in which this is incoherent. First of all, the money Trump is talking about is in the spending bill to keep government open, which was passed alongside the covid bill as an omnibus bill. So it is true that these things were voted on together. It is not true that the covid bill 
includes the things that Donald Trump is mentioning. But then adding as a next layer to this incoherence, uh, the spending bill which Trump is referencing contains basically the same or less money than what Trump asked for in his own budget just some months ago. Trump asked for the money in the spending bill that he now vetoed, which is not actually part of the covid bill. They were simply put together for a vote, which I'm against doing, to be clear. Uh, Trump also said six hundred dollars isn't enough and he wants two thousand dollars during that Tuesday speech. Congress found plenty of money for foreign countries, lobbyists and special interests while sending the bare minimum to the American people who need it. It wasn't their fault. It was China's fault, not their fault. I am asking Congress to amend this bill and increase the ridiculously low $600 to $2,000 or $4,000 for a couple. I'm also asking Congress to immediately get rid of the wasteful and unnecessary items from this legislation. So once again, I agree with Trump, but many Democrats have been talking about $2,000 since May, and it's been Trump's Republican Party that's been against more money. Now Trump says he wants more. Well, it would have been nice for him to push for that and lobby for that in May when some Democrats wanted it. But Republicans, by and large, don't uh, don't want more money. It's just up and down erratic one way. Uh, one way or the other. And then, of course, deep down, there may be other reasons not being mentioned for Donald Trump's veto. One is that the spending bill doesn't eliminate Section 230. Trump has been obsessed with this. Section 230 says that if people post things that are legally problematic to Twitter, the people are responsible or liable, not Twitter. If people do the same thing with YouTube or Facebook, it's the users, not the platform responsible. Trump believes that if you get rid of Section 230 and make the platforms legally responsible, lots of anti-Trump stuff would be taken down. Trump's just wrong uh, about that. He just misunderstands. And then Trump also is essentially defunding the troops in vetoing this bill while he claims to be the biggest supporter who has funded them more than anybody else ever has. And then lastly, it also appears Trump didn't like some of the anti money laundering provisions that are in the spending bill, not the covid bill. And we recently learned that Jared Kushner has been running a shell company to siphon campaign donations off and pay salaries to Trump's own family members and friends. So there's incoherence. There's likely a self-serving aspect. There, there's really a little bit of everything here in the end the mediocre bill will probably pass as the House and Senate is expected to override Trump's veto next week. Again, if all goes as it is expected to go, the Trump crony pardon list is growing quickly. I had 15 or so names for you yesterday that were moderately cronyistic. But today's list, while smaller, is way more cronyistic. Donald Trump has now pardoned Jared Kushner's dad, Charles Kushner. Remember, Trump's daughter is Ivanka. Ivanka married to Jared. Jared is not just Trump's son in law, but also an advisor. And Jared's dad, Charles Kushner, was previously convicted for uh, hiding personal political contributions through organizations for tax evasion and for witness tampering. It's quite a slate of crimes. And the witness tampering charge is wild. Jared Kushner's dad, Charles Kushner, hired a prostitute that he knew what it means that he knew her. I, it's not clear. He knew a prostitute, hired her to seduce his own brother in law, 
set up a recording system for the whole thing and then sent the tape to his sister. He was ultimately sentenced for two years, served 14 months, then went to a halfway house and was disbarred. Big fiasco. So Trump pardoned him, essentially a family member by marriage. Trump also pardoned Paul Manafort and Roger Stone, both convicted in the Trump Russia investigation. Both, quote, stayed loyal, as they say, didn't give up any info on Trump. So they got pardoned specifically after helping to keep Donald Trump out of harm's way, exactly as we thought they would when Stone and Manafort got pulled into the investigation years ago. And then less prominently, Trump added uh, pardons for 23 other people yesterday and three sentence commutations as well. So are we surprised that Donald Trump is pardoning friends and cronies? No, of course not. Uh, is there a bigger question about presidential pardons that goes beyond Trump? No doubt. No doubt about it. But the way that Donald Trump is using his pardon power is so cronyistic that even some Republicans are saying this is not good. Um, Republican Senator Ben Sass from Nebraska said, quote, this is rotten to the core. Now, to everybody saying to me on Twitter and elsewhere that, hold on a second, Obama also pardoned people. Yes, Obama pardoned many people. But there's a key difference, which is that so far, the majority of Trump's pardons are either people directly connected to him or whose crimes were connected to helping him. That's not the same as Obama. There's a debate about pardons to be had. Let's not pretend that what Donald Trump has done with pardons is the same as what Barack Obama did of the 65 pardons and commutations that Trump had granted before yesterday. Sixty went to people either with a personal tie to Donald Trump or whose crimes specifically helped Trump's political goals or helped to protect Donald Trump. So that's different. Now, Trump and other Trump loyalists have insisted the president's pardon power is absolute. And in a general sense, that's absolutely true. The pardon power is absolute. But remember that Trump dangled a pardon for Paul Manafort during Manafort's prosecution. That's part of the obstruction that Robert Mueller was looking at, among other instances. Recall that during Paul Manafort's trial, Trump publicly praised Manafort, didn't rule out a pardon even as the trial was ongoing and then said Manafort was brave for refusing to break and that flipping almost ought to be outlawed. And then, of course, bigger picture, the, the other tragedy with this is that there are really th at least thousands of people, <clears throat> maybe tens of thousands. I don't know, not Trump's cronies, but just regular people mistreated by the justice system who could really benefit from pardons. And Trump is throwing in a few pardons for people serving long jail sentences for drug charges, for example. But it's, it's really symbolic and meaningless systemically and structurally. And if Trump really wanted to do something good with this pardon power, look at the hundreds or even thousands of people <clears throat> bullied unfairly by the justice system, convicted for drug crimes, which have now ruined their employment prospects who could really benefit from a pardon. So always with Trump, it's not just the cronyistic stuff and the nepotism, but there's almost always a missed opportunity to actually use his power for good. Expect even more pardons. We're still waiting to see whether the preemptive pardons happen for his family, for Rudy Giuliani and others. That may not be until January if it does happen on January 1st, huge membership special to kick off the year. 
If you've been thinking of getting a membership, get on my newsletter at davidpackman.com. You will get a perfect email on the first telling you how to sign up. The David Pakman Show at davidpackman.com. I want to take a second to tell you about one of our sponsors, SNH Masks. SNH Masks has everything you need when it comes to face masks and other protective gear for COVID-19. And they're giving my audience 20% off. SNH Masks is the company that I've personally been going to for face masks. I love and trust the products they sell. And that's actually why I reached out to them about being a sponsor. I've tried tons of different face masks this year, like many of you. And I still have not found a mask that is more comfortable or easier to breathe in than the washable cotton masks that they sell. It's made of a silky lightweight cloth that feels great on the skin, has a convenient adjustable strap. They also have disposable cloth masks, which are really comfortable, as well as all of the other gear like face shields, alcohol wipes, no touch infrared thermometers. And all of their prices are very reasonable. I also love SNH masks because they've donated over 60,000 masks to healthcare institutions. They're an excellent company. Shipping is just five bucks and shipping is free on orders over one hundred and fifty dollars. You can get there by going to davidpackmancom slash mask. The link is in the podcast notes and you can save 20 percent on everything in their store when you use coupon code David. A lot of the shirts you see me wearing on YouTube are actually made by a company called Teddy Stratford. I love these shirts, and that's why I asked them to be a sponsor of the show. It really is the most innovative shirt you can buy because most slim fit button up shirts give you this weird stretched out gap in the chest where the buttons are. You don't get that with the Teddy Stratford shirts because all of their shirts come with a patented zipper hidden beneath the buttons, which prevents the chest from stretching apart like that. But most importantly, just overall, it makes the shirt fit much better and look better. The carefully designed shirt is also cut in a way that improves the look of your upper body physique. It has a really nice, elegant, close fit that other shirts don't really give you. It also has a specially designed collar that won't fall down and lay flat, which I love. The difference all around with these shirts really is noticeable. Go check them out at davidpackman.com slash Teddy. The link is in the podcast notes and they'll give you 15 percent off your first order. If you use the coupon code Pacman at checkout, that's P-A-K-M-A-N. The David Pacman Show at davidpackman.com. So as we're going to talk about a little bit later today, Donald Trump left Washington, D.C. yesterday after vetoing the second coronavirus relief bill and appears to be turning on absolutely everyone around him, including Vice President Mike Pence. And things are going to get interesting for these last few weeks. Uh, based on a report from Axios's Jonathan Swan, it appears that the reason Trump is turning on everybody is fury and rage that others are not indulging Trump's conspiracy theories about the election, nor his absolutely hopeless and absurd ideas for how to overturn the results. Donald Trump has reportedly been outraged at Vice President Mike Pence, at Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, at White House Counsel Pat Cipollone, at Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, and even at Senate Majority Leader 
Mitch McConnell. And even though once again, the White House and the people around Trump have distanced themselves from attorney Sidney Powell, it appears as though it's her perspective. That's the one that is in Trump's mind primarily, which is that everybody around him who's not willing to foment his harebrained ideas for how to overturn the election are seen by Trump as being weak, stupid or disloyal or some combination of the three. And the effect of this again, according to Jonathan Swan from Axios, is that the few people around Trump with an iota of common sense are reportedly very concerned about Donald Trump's behavior. Uh, Donald Trump reportedly thinks Mike Pence isn't fighting hard enough for him. Donald Trump is furious that White House counsel Pat Cipollone isn't doing enough of the things Trump wants to try to overturn the election. Trump thinks anyone who's not willing to push for the Department of Justice to forcibly see, I'm sorry, the uh, it's not justice, it's um, uh, Homeland Security to forcibly seize voting machines. Anybody who doesn't want that is weak. And apparently it's not just Trump cultists and loyalists who are looking at January 6th as an important date, because according to people who have discussed January 6th with Donald Trump, he is also apparently thinking that maybe Mike Pence can do something for him as he oversees the formal counting of the electoral vote. Donald Trump spoke Monday night with Republicans in the House about voting to overturn the results on January 6th, which is just completely absurd. And then lastly, it does appear that Donald Trump has also fully turned on Senate Majority Leader Republican Senator Mitch McConnell, including listen to this. Trump had his own personal assistant email uh, Republican lawmakers on Monday night a single PowerPoint slide that attacks Mitch McConnell. So there's every indication that the last couple of weeks of this administration after we get back uh, from from the New Year's break are going to be completely and utterly insane. The grifters and the conspiracy theorists really seem to have gotten to Donald Trump and, and Trump actually seems to have fallen for all of the craziest ideas and the most laughable notions about this election and about how he could potentially overturn the results and get a second term, none of which will work but will embarrass him and really damage the, the country if he continues to try. And so if the last few weeks are evidence of anything, they're evidence that that 25th Amendment to remove a president would never have been more appropriate than it is right now. But uh, it's not even worth talking about more. It's just not going to happen. The themes here are Trump can never accept responsibility. He can never accept losing. Everything is always somebody else's fault. He can never accept that his actions have consequences. He sees the consequences, but he doesn't connect them to his past actions. He, he blames other people. And by the time we get back early in 2021, there's sort of two paths here. Donald Trump will either have continued escalating from this to something even more outrageous or he won't come back to the White House at all after his Christmas trip to Florida, and he'll just sort of evaporate uh, the way he's been behaving the last 48 hours makes me think he's not going to go quietly. Um, but all we can do is wait and see. But Republicans are increasingly worried about his behavior, and I want to talk about that next. Uh, Donald Trump dropped an absolutely massive chaos bomb, just massive dumps of chaos. Uh, before leaving Washington, D.C. for his Florida resort yesterday, 
we already discussed that Trump vetoed the second coronavirus relief package. Trump tweeted threats to Iran and Trump continues to make completely baseless claims about supposed voter fraud. And now Republicans in the House and Senate are apparently trying to figure out how to deal with what they are increasingly describing as an unhinged Trump. And of course, with all of these stories, we have to understand the backstory. But we also need to understand that although it may sound as if these Republicans now accurately are, are describing what's going on with Trump, they've been the primary enablers of Trump uh, for a very long time. And Trump has been unhinged and continues being unhinged. So the Republicans now saying, whoa, Trump's acting a little bit crazy. Uh, they deserve none of our sympathy and they deserve much of the blame. Now, I already told you in the earlier segment that Donald Trump's behavior with regard to trying to overturn the election has put him at odds with his own vice president, Mike Pence, his own secretary of state, his own White House counsel and many other people. Now we're hearing from many sources that aides around Donald Trump at the White House are increasingly disturbed by his anti-democratic behavior. But since Trump posted that absurd video screed on Tuesday, making all sorts of false claims about the stimulus package and after he dropped that chaos bomb yesterday before leaving, we're hearing from more and more Republicans and aides to Republicans that there is genuine concern about what Trump is doing here. One Republican aide said to CNN that Trump is, quote, coming unhinged. Now, he's been unhinged for years. Uh, House Republicans actually had a phone call yesterday to talk about what to do about Donald Trump's bizarre threats and his reaction to the stimulus package, which, of course, ended up with a veto, as we already discussed. Republican Congressman Don Bacon says Trump has thrown Republicans under the bus. And there are apparently also concerns that some Republicans will bow to Trump's pressure to try to challenge the counting of the electoral vote on January 6th. Now, to be clear, nobody thinks that they would have enough support to actually make a difference and overturn the results. Mitch McConnell has been telling Senate Republicans do not get involved in this effort to challenge the results on January 6th. But there's concern about how to handle the optics if some Republicans did bow to Donald Trump's pressure. So let's talk a little bit more about that. There is no way that Republicans are going to change the outcome of the Electoral College vote going for Joe Biden. But it is conceivable that Trump will get some House Republicans to object to the count for Joe Biden to get electoral votes from six states that Biden won. And if House Republicans and Trump can convince just a single Republican senator to join them in their objections, theoretically, they could force a vote in both chambers which Republicans and Democrats still believe would lead to Joe Biden winning. But again, it would look disastrous for Republicans in a number of different ways. Those who might vote to give Trump the presidency, if such a vote were forced, would be completely humi humiliated nationally. And those who vote that Biden should be president, Republicans might suffer the wrath of Trumpists in their constituencies. Now, increasingly, I'm getting the sense that even though these very Republicans are the people responsible for what Donald Trump did over the last four years, they likely are setting themselves up, at least many of them, to sort of pretend they were never really on Trump's side, even to pretend Trump sort of didn't happen. 
after Donald Trump leaves office and to very quickly move on and get back to partisan business as usual. We care about the debt. We can't we have to stop socialism. We have to stop government takeovers of this, that and the other things. But before that happens, prepare yourselves for a very, very wacky few weeks. And we'll have more coverage of this on the show's Instagram at David Pakman show. Uh, and make sure you're following me on Instagram as well at David We'll take a quick break and we will be speaking to Mark Tushnet after the break. Do we really need the Supreme Court? A very interesting perspective from Mark Tushnet coming up. The David Pakman Show at DavidPakman.com. One of our sponsors is privacy.com. They're giving you $5 when you sign up for their completely free service at privacy.com slash Pacman. I've been using privacy for a little over a year now. You've heard me talk about it before. It's a lifesaver and here's how it works. Takes just a couple of minutes to set up. Anytime you buy something online or on the phone, instead of actually using your real credit card number, the privacy app and the browser plugin, let you give each company a randomized virtual credit card number that you create out of thin air. It'll even autofill the card number with one click and the payment is taken out of your checking account without the merchant ever knowing your real information. So this allows you to keep your banking information secure, but also to take control of your finances. You can create up to 12 of these virtual credit cards a month. You can set spending limits. You can freeze them. You can delete them anytime you want. So when you do this, it means you're not going to be charged when you don't want to be because you can destroy the virtual card number right after using it, which, for instance, I love using free trials because I know I won't be charged when the trial is over. If I use a virtual credit card number, you're keeping your identity private by not telling companies who you are. You're keeping your bank or credit card info protected against data breaches and identity theft. And it's free. There's no catch whatsoever. But if you want, privacy also offers a $10 a month plan that gives you 1% cash back and lets you create 36 credit cards a month and a $25 a month plan tailored more for small businesses where you can create 60 card numbers a month and much more. But definitely go ahead and at least get started with the free plan. You'll protect your financial info. Companies can't charge you unexpectedly. And like I said, you'll get $5 to spend when you sign up at privacy.com slash Pacman. Welcome back to the David Pacman show. Today we're going to be speaking with Mark Tushnet, who is emeritus professor at Harvard Law School and also a specialist in U.S. and comparative constitutional law. Uh, it's so great to have you on. I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me. So I guess to get into this conversation, uh, there's been significant debate over the last few months since the passing of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg about uh, the correct number of Supreme Court justices and questions like whether there should, for example, be a term limits for Supreme Court justices. But there, there's another approach, and that's one of questioning whether we really even need or, or should have a Supreme Court. So, I mean, let's let's just start there. What do you believe the purpose of the Supreme Court was originally and does it still fulfill that purpose? 
Well, the basic idea of the court was uh, uh, that you needed some body uh, that would be able to enforce uh, the provisions of the Constitution. Uh, um, you could expect politicians to debate the constitutional issues and reach compromises and so on. And so uh, politics might be one way of making sure that uh, people adhere to the Constitution. But uh, um, early on, people started worrying that politicians might um, find it in their mutual interest to do something that was inconsistent with the Constitution, to uh, agree on oh, some program that uh, gave the president too much power. Sure. Or m more likely that we, uh, what we think of today, uh, enact programs that violated individual rights. And the thought was you could insert a court into the process so as to to check against those possibilities. And at this point in time, is that number one still necessary? And number two, is that the primary activity that the Supreme Court is engaged in checking that? Well, on the second question, no, actually, it turns out not. The primary thing the court does, things that don't get as much attention, um, is interpret statutes. Uh, tell, you know, Congress passes a statute, it's got some provisions in it that aren't clear. Uh, and and the Supreme Court comes up with an authoritative interpretation of the statute. Um, on the first, um, I think it's it's a tricky question about whether the court is um, now either needed or doing too much in terms of uh, enforcing constitutional provisions. Uh, the reason it's tricky is that we now understand that there's a lot of, I would put it this way, reasonable disagreement about what the Constitution actually means. Um, and it's, everybody thinks they know, uh, the Constitution prohibits things that they don't like happening. Uh, but it turns out that it's very difficult to uh, say that very often legislatures or Congress president um, actually do things that nobody could fairly say are consistent with the Constitution. Occasionally they do, once in a while. But most of the time what the court's doing is saying, you have this interpretation of the Constitution. It, maybe it's a reasonable one, but we have a different one, and we're going to stop you from doing what you think is consistent with the Constitution. So in terms of uh, yeah, no problem. So in term in terms of if there were no Supreme Court, is it is it as simple as the 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 next lowest court's decision? It becomes the final decision. Is it that simple or is there more rearranging that would need to be done? Well, you'd probably want to do more rearranging. I mean, what, if it were, if you just took the court out of the process entirely, uh, then you'd end up with uh, the possibility of a court in California saying something constitutionally okay, 
and a court in Massachusetts saying it's not okay. Yeah. That's not impossible. I mean, you can live with a world like that, but it's sort of awkward. We think it's our constitution. Um, so you probably, if you take the court out of the process, you probably want to uh, take the lower courts out of it as well. And how would you do that? Would you establish some kind of a well, I mean, I won't I won't even pretend to know how you, how you would do it. How, how would it be done? What would what would be the way that you would rearrange that process? Well, my preferred solution would be to say, yes, we can still keep the courts involved uh, for reasons that I'll get to in just a moment, uh, but they should apply a standard. We could even write it into the Constitution that they should hold things unconstitutional only if they are, my phrase is, manifestly unreasonable. Uh, and, and that sharply reduces the uh, degree to which the courts any court could uh, uh, could intervene in in constitutional interpretation it would still give them some role, but only for extreme cases. In terms of the more common reforms that are sometimes mentioned or changes to the court, um, uh, things like changes to the process by which by the mere chance or timing of who is president at the time that a vacancy is created, changing that. So it's not just the, the whim of whether there's a Republican or a Democrat in the White House, changing the number of justices on the court, putting term limits uh, for uh, being on the court. Do you do you like any of these, all of them, none of them? Um, so I'm in favor of of any program that's likely to have some effect on reducing the role of the court in our political life. Okay. Uh, people, the most popular thing that, of the things you've mentioned are term limits. And um, I'm, I've signed on to a term limits proposal. Um, people who favor them do think that if you have sort of a regular process of um, arrival and departure, then the stakes for each uh, appointment will go down and that might lower the uh, willingness of the court to get involved in deep uh, political matters. The appointment process would be more routine, less highly politicized. Um, I think that might happen. Um, uh, the, the, the expanding the size of the court, which is also something I currently favor, uh, um, would temporarily actually uh, make the court more prominent uh, because people would focus on, on, well, they've just, you know, expanded the court to change the rulings that right. are coming out of it. But people also seem to think that eventually there'd be some sort of uh, uh, equilibrium where first Democrats expand the court, then Republicans expand the the court and eventually people come to understand that that's not a terrible, terribly great way of doing things. And what you really want to do is, uh, again, lower the temperature uh, of uh, the court's activity. And so you know, they, people talk about reducing the legitimacy of the court. I think that's basically a good thing. Uh, and so if court expansion had that effect, that would be OK with me, too. When it comes to um, the idea of uh, and I know that the, this is sort of a different different question, the idea of constitutional originalism, which is a, a very, very 
big debate. To me, there's a few elements that that sort of don't pass the sniff test that are very often mentioned, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on it. One is if we're talking about constitutional originalism as thought at the time of the Constitution's creation, when we talk about bearing arms, we would have to account for the types of arms that existed at the time and recognize a lot of what's available today would be out of scope, even even theoretically imaginable at the time. When you talk about cruel and unusual punishment, what we have today is is dramatically different than what would have fallen under that definition at the time. So how what is your sense in terms of this debate around originalism, which is often put forward by those who seem unwilling to concede some of these points on cruel and unusual and on the Second Amendment that I've brought up? I think we have to distinguish between two kinds of originalism. There's the originalism that academics have come up with. Okay. Uh, and academics have a decent account of uh, academic originalists have, have come up with a decent account of the Second Amendment problems and how we can deal with them uh, and the, the cruel and unusual punishment provision, and a whole bunch of other things. Uh, uh, equality for women uh, is a you know, significant uh, matter. Um, so the academic theory actually has a certain amount of uh, credibility. But then there's the practice of originalism by judges who say they are originalists. And that's sharply different from what the academics say. And it's entirely inconsistent. Uh, they are originalists when uh, the results they come up with uh, fit their mostly conservative ideology, and then they depart from originalism when they haven't figured out how to defend their conservative positions in originalist terms. Uh, the best example of that, incidentally, is affirmative action. Um, uh, there's There's just no... Uh, uh, no credible, I should, the academics have a credible way of defending or of attacking affirmative action uh, uh, on originalist grounds, but conservative judges haven't even bothered to try. They just think that it's inconsistent with some fundamental principle of equality that they're committed to without trying to link that principle to original understandings. OK, this is good because it adds a level of nuance when we hear those who are not particularly well educated on this br bring up this issue of, of original intent in order to defend some of their conservative ideals. So when we talk about constitutional originalism, you're pointing out there is judicial constitutional originalism and then there is academic constitutional originalism and that these are two different things. And as you're putting forward the idea that academic constitutional originalism does deal with some of these apparent contradictions, maybe we could dig into one of them, like, for example, on Second Amendment and the idea of what arms referred to hundreds of years ago versus the, the weapons available today. How would the academic originalists sort of uh, deal with that? So the academic account is actually, there are two versions of the academic account. One is um, tied to what we mostly think about these days. And it is, uh, you say, 
you have to think about the kinds of weapons that people had in mind that were understood to be covered by the Second Amendment. Right. And when they thought about and talked about the weapons that were covered by the Second Amendment, they referred to weapons that everybody has access to, or in the current phrase, weapons in common use. And so now you translate that to the current circumstances and you ask what weapons are in current use today. Um, so, so weapons in current use then were muskets and things like that. They're not in current use now, but ordinary handguns are in current use. Um, on the other hand, bazookas are not in current use. So you're making an analogy. In other words, you have to you have to think of what was what would be analogous to those weapons today. Right. Uh, yeah. Okay. Exactly. exactly. Um, so that's one way of doing it. Sure. Um, the other way is much more radical. And actually, I think my own view is uh, more connected to what was actually going on. Um, the original understanding on this second view of the Second Amendment was that it was a way of ensuring that ordinary people would be able to uh, fight against uh, an overreaching government. Uh, they would be able to arm themselves to protect themselves, not against criminals, right. but against you know, soldiers. Um, and given uh, what the military has today, that would imply a very, very high, uh, a loose standard for what it would right, mean. for yeah. Exactly. And, and no, no contemporary defender of the Second Amendment, except people associated with you know, these Michigan militia types, uh, want to go there. Um, and so the judges uh, say, well, we don't, you know, they may have had this original understanding about what was called the insurrectionist view, but, but that's not what we think the original understanding was. Uh, and they do that precisely for this sort of um, uh, um, um, instrumental reason, uh, ends-focused reasons. Uh, they don't want to say people have a right to have bazookas or anti-tank weapons. Right. Now, it seems like you could apply a similar standard to this idea of cruel and unusual punishments, right? Where where you would say, well, just because there are things available now that weren't available then and some of the things that were done then have gone out of style, we have to sort of evaluate what is analogous at this time. Right, right. And and uh, and here, in fact, um, again, the academic position is, yeah, that's right. And it might be that in particular capital punishment or uh, um, life imprisonment without parole for juveniles, those might be inconsistent with the fundamental ideas that were understood to be written into the cruel and unusual pun punishments clause. And again, what judicial originalists do is they abandon the originalism and they say, well, look, the text says capital crimes. So whatever they thought cruel and unusual punishment meant, they also thought capital punishment was constitutionally permissible. Um, and, and so again, you see this inconsistency between the practice of conservative judges who want to uphold capital punishment and um, originalism as it might be coherently worked out. Absolutely fascinating. I think the big takeaway is 
no matter what you call your philosophy, there is still debate to be had in figuring out exactly how we define it and, and different versions of it. Uh, uh, that's right. I mean, uh, I think the, the again, I'm an academic. The academic view of these debates is that uh, with relatively minor exceptions, um, whatever your theoretical position is, um, you're going to be able to fit your current political views into it. Um, and that means that the theoretical stuff really isn't, really isn't doing any serious work. What's going on is you're a liberal or you're a conservative, and that's how you rule. Yes, uh, very well described by by behavioral economists, in fact, like Daniel Kahneman and and others who have talked a lot about that type of uh, motivated reasoning, which clearly exists within the issue of, of constitutional scholarship as well. Uh, we've been speaking with Mark Tushnet, emeritus professor at Harvard Law School. Uh, professor, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. I so appreciate your time. I, I enjoyed it and appreciate being on. The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. What if you could read 10 books in just one sitting? That's exactly what one of my favorite apps lets you do. It's called Blinkist. And what they do is take thousands of popular nonfiction books. They condense them down into text or audio that you can consume in 15 minutes. Blinkist makes sure that you're getting all of the important core insights from each book. So it's perfect for exploring a book you otherwise wouldn't have time for. If there's a full book you're thinking about buying, you can use Blinkist to get a sample first. Just think how much you can enrich yourself by being able to soak up an entire nonfiction book in just 15 minutes. I recently checked out the book Podcast Marketing Strategy by Daniel Rolls and Kieran Rogers and so useful, so particularly applicable to what I'm doing. Really recommend it. Blinkist has books on politics, philosophy, science. They have 27 different nonfiction categories and a subscription is only about eight bucks a month and you get access to the entire library. But you can try it totally free and get 25% off a subscription when you go to Blinkist.com slash Pacman. That's B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com slash Pacman. The David Pacman Show at DavidPacman.com. 2020 has really been a comedy of errors for Fox News host Maria Bartiromo. But yesterday, something truly magical happened. She interviewed the supposed CEO of a pork producer and processor. The CEO supposedly named Dennis Organ from Smithfield Foods. And it turns out that she wasn't really interviewing Dennis Organ, but instead it was an animal rights activist named Matt Johnson from the organization direct action everywhere. And this is amazing to watch. And it's kind of like the cherry on top in these last few days of 2020 of what has been a completely humiliating year for Maria Bartiromo, brown nosing Donald Trump endlessly claiming without evidence or vetting last week that a so-called intel source assured her Trump really did win the 2020 election, doing pathetic softball interview after softball interview with Donald Trump. So anyway, let's get to this interview, supposedly with pork CEO Dennis Organ. 
actually an activist named Matt Johnson. The topic is vaccines for food workers. Another group pushing to get the vaccine early, food workers. Plants across the U.S. saw major outbreaks early in the pandemic. Joining me right now is the CEO of Smithfield Foods, Dennis Organ. Dennis, it's great to have you this morning. Thanks very much for joining us. Can you tell us where you are in terms of that rash of coronavirus cases that hit your South Dakota operation? Uh, well, well, Merry Christmas, Maria. Uh, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly been, been a challenging time, um, and, and we have our, our workers uh, that, that are, you know, in, in desperate need of these vaccinations. And as you mentioned, uh, we're, we're heartened to hear that the CDC is prioritizing America's food workers um, with the second round of va vaccinations. Um, it's uh, 30 million vaccine doses that are going out to uh, essential frontline employees out of the 87 million total. And um, of course, this pandemic has been um, simply devastating for our uh, industry, thousands of our um, really courageous food workers. And I really do want to emphasize uh, the, the heroic efforts of these folks. Um, they've been getting sick for, you know, really just trying to provide for their families. Um, and as far yeah. as Smithfield, you know, we've We've done for our employees, we've provided them with extensive personal protective equipment um, and, and offered additional um, paid leave for, for sick employees. But um, the steps have, have unfortunately been uh, insufficient in, in many instances. Um, these folks have been through a lot. Um, frankly, we, we might bear some responsibility for that, but we know that our Smithfield family is is dedicated. So it starts pretty buttoned up, but then uh, uh, he starts with you know, we probably bear some responsibility for food workers catching covid and it starts to slowly get wackier. And it's not clear Maria Bartiromo realizes it right away and, and resilient and, and the better times uh, are ahead. Um, and if I may yeah. add quickly, um, as 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 the new uh, CEO and president of Smithfield, um, I'm personally promised that, uh, that that we're going to do better, um, and and the first change uh, under my leadership is is transparency and and at times brutal honesty and um, and, and and the truth is that that our industry, in addition to the outbreaks that are happening at our plants, our industry poses a serious threat um, in in effectively bringing on the next pandemic um, with CDC yeah. data. Um, showing that uh, okay. three or four infectious diseases come from from animals um, and the conditions inside of inside of our farms can sometimes be petri dishes uh, for for new diseases. Um, hog farming also yeah. causes immense harm to our air and waterways. So now he goes into bullet points about how terrible animal agriculture is and how it contributes to pollution and to carbon emissions. And it's obviously not what a pork CEO would ever say. And I can't tell, but maybe Maria's starting to think something is up here and there's more. And Maria seems so eager to talk about how Smithfield Farms was bought by a Chinese conglomerate that she almost seems not to notice. But then Matt Johnson starts bringing up more animal born diseases and it starts to become almost satirical. And then he starts talking about a five hundred a five hundred million dollar donation. Take a listen. Um, well, Dennis, that's what I want to ask you about. That's what I want to ask you about, Dennis, because Smithfield Foods is the world's largest pork producer. 
you are in an incredible, you know, uh, an incredible spot uh, to have incredible impact in the United States and across the world. But China acquired Smithfield. Your parent company is now based in Hong Kong. Uh, can you tell us how it works? There was a post recently uh, about the way your company operates. Are the hogs raised in the United States and then sent to China? Uh, to get slaughtered and and uh, and uh, produced and and packaged. Yeah, well, well, well Smithfield Foods uh, is is uh, uh, owned by a Chinese conglomerate, um, and uh, the, the the pigs are uh, they're, they're they're slaughtered in the U.S. and and uh, we we have an export market which we think is. Uh, uh, a very necessary part of a thriving economy to have open trade. Um, there is um, uh, so been some leveling off of demand that we've seen in China. Um, there was a, a African swine fever outbreak that happened, um, or, or a round of them really, um, where there was greater demand. And yeah, now they're, I was uh, told. Dennis, I was told that in China, you know, there was this African swine flu that affected so many pigs that there were a million pigs in the river dead. They didn't know where to where to get rid of the pigs that were dead. And then other sources were saying, well, you know, you can't get sick even if the pig was uh, had African swine flu, if the pig was dead. So they they cut up the meat as well. How are Americans going to believe that the meat is safe? If they're going to China to get slaughtered and packaged, what kind of processing uh, securities do you have in place to assure Americans that their pork is safe, Dennis? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So we, we have extensive uh, safety protocols in place uh, for our essential frontline employees, um, from, from personal protective equipment that they wear to, uh, to, to sanitation of, of, uh, of our equipment and our facilities. And um, I mean, I think that uh, that our company's track record really speaks for itself um, in in that regard. But um, I mean, in terms of the impact that we've that uh, that this industry has on on the world, um, we really want to 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 kind of embrace a, a brighter future. And um, and 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 with with some of the, um, and with with some of the the, the impacts. Uh, that our industry is is, is having, um, we're actually pledging now um, a half a billion dollars a year starting in 2021 to to, to mitigate some okay. of these impacts because um, what's happening in okay. in China um, and, and what's happening elsewhere, um, there, there's a lot of concerns. Yes. A lot of people are worried about. Hilariously, Maria Bartiromo almost knowingly is uh, almost unknowingly is indicting Smithfield as much as the fake CEO is. But his mention of pledging half a billion dollars, 500 million to fighting the very problems his company creates is, is just brilliant. And then they ended up finding out after the fact that this was completely bogus. And Maria Bartiromo uh, uh, found out it was a fake CEO and she apologized. We have an important correction to make. It appears we have been punked. Earlier in the program, I interviewed someone calling, claiming to be the CEO of Smithfield Foods, Dennis Organ. We've since learned that that was not Dennis Organ, but an imposter making false claims about the company. He is someone who has absolutely no relation to Smithfield Foods. We want to apologize to Dennis Organ, Smithfield Foods, and to our audience for making this mistake. We will, of course, be more vigilant. 
It is just wild. And this is a great opportunity to play a clip that many may not know about. I would be doing you a disservice if I didn't take this opportunity to play a clip of when Max Rice, who's been a guest on this show, Max Rice pretended back in 2012 to be a former Obama voter so disillusioned with Obama that he was voting Mitt Romney in 2012. And he pranked then Fox News anchor Gretchen Carlson on Fox News. I would argue it was better than yesterday's Smithfield prank. Uh, Take a look and apologies for the uh, poor video quality to the Romney Ryan ticket. Joining me now is a recent college grad, Max Rice. He voted for President Obama. So. Now he's unemployed and just moved out of his parents' home. Good morning to you, Max. Well, hello, Miss, Miss USA. It's an honor. Uh, Miss America. I wish I could but, see but, you. But, but close enough. Miss America. This um, universe in my book, in my book. Oh, OK. Well, well, thank you very much. Um, now, tell me your story. You believed in uh, the hope and change of President Obama. And so you voted for him. And, and tell me about the next three oh, and a half I was, years. I was a huge Obama supporter in 2008. I, I met him in third grade. I met him when I was little. OK. And why now are you supporting Mitt uh, What's your question? Why now are you supporting Mitt Romney? Uh, why am I supporting Mitt Romney? It's actually a funny story. I lost a basketball game. To a friend of mine, Alex Dern, who's a huge supporter of this show. Okay, so it sounds like you're not being very serious. But I'm also about disapp- this. I'm also disappointed in uh, the direction that Obama's taking this nation. But in yeah, I will way? be casting my ballot for Mitt Romney. Okay, and uh, true that you had to go back and live with your parents after you graduated from college. Oh yeah, after I went to college for a bit, I had to go back and live with my parents this summer. I'm back on my own. Independent. I'm on national TV. I feel like I'm doing good. It's an honor. Okay. Well, are you being serious about this interview or not? Yeah. Okay. I can't see your face right now. This is so weird. All right. Well, actually, we're going to wrap this up now because I'm not so sure that you're actually totally serious about that. Wait, 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 wait. Why not? Yeah, I'm not Gretchen, sure that I'm not sure that you're ready for for prime time yet with this interview. I'm not ready for prime time. Wait, I've been this is I've been All right. We're going to give Max another chance maybe when he's ready to. So that's really the standard by which all of these must be judged. And Max Rice back in 2012 on Fox News was an absolute classic. Maria Bartiromo, yes, humiliating herself with the fake pork CEO, but doing it in marginally uh, less dramatic fashion than uh, what happened with Gretchen Carlson back in 2012. But nicely done by Matt Johnson. We have a subreddit discussion forum where you can join 26,000 other viewers and listeners and uh, discuss politics respectfully. You can find it at davidpackmancom slash Reddit. Few notable posts I spotted this morning. One is a user asking whether we are going to get to 4000 daily deaths from the virus after Christmas or New Year's. I've said before that I believe the case peak is coming very soon and that the death peak is slightly behind that and that then we are going to start seeing warming weather and vaccination starting to have an impact probably by late January, early February. So I believe we are almost at the, the pandemic peak unless something goes very wrong. Um, I hope we don't get to 4000 daily deaths. We are regularly seeing 3300, 3400 now more than a 9-11's worth of deaths every day. Um, it's it's conceivable we will get to 4000. I'm hopeful that we will not. 
uh, because that would be an absolutely uh, a tragic, tragic milestone. But it's not inconceivable. Uh, another user uh, reminding us that New York has enacted automatic voter registration. This is a topic we've been discussing for a very long time. The idea that in order to vote, you need to do something beyond simply being a citizen. Um, is antithetical to the way many voting systems are set up in other countries. Undocumented immigrants by their nature can't vote because they're not citizens. Uh, this is not something that uh, is unique to the United States. And yet we have this process here which serves only to dissuade people from voting or prevent people from voting, which is even though you could vote, you can't vote unless you register to vote. Some states allowing same day registration, many not allowing it. New York state has enacted automatic voter registration. The details are still being sifted through, but that is very, very good news. More states should do it. And then lastly, because we're wrapping up uh, uh, here before the holiday, um, we got a holiday greeting via the subreddit. Holiday greetings to David and Pat with much thanks. Thanks for maintaining conti continued surveillance of the events of this past year, including the horrendous covid pandemic and the equally disgusting Trump and Republican machinations revolving around the election. As someone who is increasingly tuned out much of the news, I nevertheless have great respect for those who can face what's been going on and report and comment about it. It's not an easy task. Knowledge can be disheartening, but also empowering. Hope next year ends on a higher note for all of us. But whatever the case, hope the Pacman show will endure. A beautiful message, and uh, you can join the discussion at davidpackman.com/slash Reddit. All right, we have a voicemail number. That number is 2192 David P. We heard from the Eggman who mostly listens to the show, but he watched the other day, and it sounds like he kind of liked it. Take a listen. Hey Dave, you know, I just listened to your podcast. I don't watch videos or YouTube or any clips or anything. Um, I'm an adult. I'm busy all day. Right. I have time to listen while I work. I've been missing out on the visual aspect. Oh my God. I just watched a clip on uh, Facebook and you're listening to some crazy caller and you take a sip of your water with your hand underneath the cup like Trump did. And I started cracking up and I thought, how many other purely visual jokes am I missing from you? Dave, have I been just only getting two dimensions of yes. the three dimensional show? You put yes. Out? Oh, man, I've been missing out. Shalom, brother. And, um, you know, have a really good time off. Good holiday season. Yep. Yeah. There are uh, many visual elements that you were missing if, if you were only listening to the show. But I understand lots of people prefer just to listen. And that's absolutely fine. We have the audio podcast for that reason. On the bonus show today, the U.S. government has figured out how to get 100 million more vaccine doses from Pfizer. We will discuss it. New York is leading the nation in population decline, and they may lose two House seats as a result. And the Texas lieutenant governor who offered a million bucks, if you can find evidence of voter fraud, is now refusing to pay it after we found evidence of pro Trump voter fraud happening. Uh, we covered that story yesterday. We will discuss the follow uh, the fallout on today's bonus show. Get instant access by becoming a member at joinpacman.com. 